The Lord is my shepherd. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I want to thank you, Almighty God, for your presence with us, your care for us as your people. And we want to pray that as we gather around your word now, that we might each one, by the power of your spirit, hear you speaking to us, that we might be strengthened and encouraged, that we might receive your goodness and mercy, and that we might, uh, by your grace, endure until we dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So please work to give us life and to revive us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 24. A psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Salah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Salah. I hope you want to keep that open uh, in front of you. There's also an outline of the sermon on the back of the notice sheet that may be a help to you as we go. Uh, I think it is a truism, isn't it, that the way we treat things is directly proportional to our sense of their worth. So that worth might be financial, uh, it might be more personal and emotional, sentimental, but the, the more that something is worth to us, the better we will treat it and the more care we will want others to take with it. Um, a friend of mine tells the story the first time he borrowed his dad's car, he was going out with some friends. Just before he left, the, fr- the father dangled the keys in front of him like this and said, son, I have only one car. And uh, the message was very, very clear indeed. I want it back, and I want it back in one piece. I don't want to find it wrapped around a lamppost or anything else. So take good care of it. The more you value something, the better you want others to treat it, the better you want to treat it yourself. And the same principle, I'm going to argue, holds for our response to God. That the, the level of honor and worship that we give to God the energy that we invest in getting to know him and serve him is determined by our sense of his worth. If you think God doesn't exist, you won't care about him. If you think he's out of date, you'll be happy ignoring your life and the things he tells you to do. But if you come to see that he is the most worthy and glorious and mighty being, if you sense that perfect freedom is found in loving him, 
then you will be full of praise for him and you'll want to give him your all. Uh, That makes Psalm 24 a a fitting climax to this little collection of psalms I've mentioned, 15 to 24, that we've been looking at over the last few months. They're all about the perfect kingdom, the perfect kingdom that God is promising to establish through his perfect king. We've seen there's going to be someone like David, but even better than him. They tell us what God is doing in the world. They tell us the one through whom he's doing it, and they tell us how we can be a part of it. And all the while, they're enriching our picture of God and his heavenly kingdom so that we will respond to him as we should. Lots of people think, just by way of introduction, that Psalm 24 was first sung as the Ark of the Covenant was that special symbol of God's presence was carried into Jerusalem in 2 Samuel 6. That may be true. Um, Christians have always understood it more fully to be about the day the Lord Jesus ascended to heaven after his death and resurrection. As we read it, we're meant to think of him. This is God's perfect and righteous king. This is the one who alone is worthy to stand in God's presence, as we'll see. This is the one who ascended to heaven as the king of glory. And I think it is meant to blow us away a little bit. It's meant to fill our our hearts and our minds with praise and wonder for him. I think it's meant to leave us determined to dwell in the house of the Lord forever with him and so to respond rightly to him. And you'll see on the sheet we've got three points as we work our way through it, first from verses 1 and 2, the Lord of creation. Let me read them. The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Uh, And you'll see that the scope here is as comprehensive as it possibly could be with meant to envisage every bit of land and territory, every life form, every human being that's ever lived, all of them made by God, we're being told, all of them made for God. And the the tenses say that, that David isn't just talking about God making the world in the past, like someone who would, um, I don't know, wind up a kid's toy and then let it free to go and do its own thing uh, wherever it chooses. But that God continues to maintain the world actively in the present so that in such a way that that everyone and everything owes our ongoing existence to him. And as well as that, that every good experience we ever have, every opportunity that's ever presented to us, every good thing we enjoy, every person we love, even the, the breaths that we take are gifts from our maker. And that universal scope uh, deliberately contrasts what most other people of the day would have thought. Loads of of people then thought that there were many, many gods, uh, maybe each in charge of a different realm of life, like there's a god of the sea, there's a god of war, there's a god of wine, whatever, or maybe of a different territory or a different group of people, lots of gods. And David is deliberately blowing that out of the water. There's one God because there is one creator. 
And his point to God's people is that the story of of Israel, the story of its temple, the story of its king, this message about everything that God is doing in the world to establish his perfect kingdom, that's just not just one story among many stories in the universe. It is the story because Israel's God is the God. He is the Lord of creation. And and the logic of verse 1 is inescapable, isn't it? Can you just glance down at it once again? It's because the Lord is the creator of all that he's also the rightful owner of all. I take it that's a principle we'll all understand. Um, Let's say that I bake a cake. Now, I grant you, there are very few things that are less likely to happen than that I might bake a cake. We'll just run with it for uh, a little while. If I bake a cake, you will agree it is then mine to do with as I wish. I might choose to feed it to the ducks on the Kinnisburn. I could give it to you. More likely, actually, I probably wouldn't dare to eat it myself if I'd baked it, but that would have been the most likely outcome. But the choice would be mine because I made it. It's my cake. I made it. I own it. Verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for, because... He's founded it. You'll see then there is no realm that God does not claim as his own. Uh, You know how some of the Commonwealth countries are wanting to renegotiate their relationship with the UK now that Queen Elizabeth is gone. Well, they're, they're free to do that. There's no renegotiation with God. Every corner, every crevice, every nook, every cranny of the whole universe belongs to him. And that's true of everyone and everything as well. We talk a lot about autonomy. We talk about self-determination, our right to rule our own life. It's one of the mantras of our day. And of course, it's got to be right that there are careful limits on how much other people or how much the government can, can tell us what to do and how to live. But God's in a very different category because he's the Lord. He made us, we're being told, Therefore, we belong to him. And properly understood, no creature, no human is is autonomous in that way. We don't have a right to run our own life because it belongs to him. No fleas or any other flying thing, no fish or any other swimming thing, no gazelle or any other running thing. None of us, no breathing thing belongs to anyone but God. One commentator had the line, all humans in all places belong to God, along with all rock badgers and rats, all bats and bullfrogs. And really, David is just uh, meditating on Genesis 1 and 2. There's one life giver. Therefore, there's only one legitimate rule giver. And there's only one judge. And again, it flips our biggest questions on the head, doesn't it? We tend to think that what matters, maybe this is the mindset that you've come in with this morning, what matters is what we make of God, whether we choose to believe in him, whether we let him into our life. That's what we think the big question is. But I hope you can see that if he's the maker and judge of all, if we rightly belong to him and we'll one day stand before him, then what's going to matter isn't what I make of him, but what he makes of me and whether he wants to let me into his kingdom. And that brings us to our second point. The Lord of creation is also the Lord of salvation. 
Uh, and if you are glancing your eyes over verses 3 to 6, they'll ring a lot of bells if you were with us back in Psalm 15. Those two psalms bracket this little section and they feature very similar questions and answers like these. This time the question is in verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Now the, the hill in the Bible most often reminds us of Mount Sinai where Moses met with God or of Mount Zion where the temple would be built in Jerusalem. Less well known, Ezekiel also refers to the Garden of Eden as the hill of the Lord. But every time we're thinking about the presence of the Lord and the issue here is who gets to approach him? Who's worthy? Remember Adam was banished from God's presence. Psalm 1 told us the wicked will not stand in the judgment, so who will? And interestingly, the decisive thing here is not about our desire again. It's not about whether we want to be in heaven. It's about character. Verse 4, this is who gets in. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who doesn't lift up his soul to what is false, and doesn't swear deceitfully. Uh, we'll look at those four characteristics in turn. You'll see they cover his personal, his spiritual, and his social life, and they're all about integrity. To, to have clean hands, first, or to be innocent of hands, is to have done nothing wrong. It's to be entirely free from guilt because you've never once transgressed God's law. In that sense, um, this language of clean or innocent is a, is a higher bar than being undefiled. Um, in Bible terms, if an Israelite touched something that was unclean or did something that was unclean or went somewhere that was unclean, they became defiled in God's sight. But they could become undefiled again if they performed the right kind of sacrifice and that sort of stuff. This word is a higher bar than that. It is absolute innocence and purity. Just like they said of the Lord Jesus, he committed no sin. That's the level of perfection that's in view here. Second, he also has to have a pure heart. Back in um, Psalm 19, the word of God is pure because God is pure. And what God demands is someone who's pure on the inside. We all know, don't we, it's perfectly possible to do the right thing for the wrong reason. We can be kind to someone because we want to feel good about ourselves or because we want other people to think uh, that we're kind. But to be pure in heart would include our motives. It would include our emotions, our thoughts, and our inclinations. It's a comprehensive inner purity. Third, he doesn't lift up his soul to what's false. To, to lift up your soul to something is to desire it. It's to set your heart on it. Um, first line of Psalm 25, David says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. The only one who's worthy of devotion is the Lord. Here it's put negatively. The, the one who has the right to enter God's presence is as spiritually pure as he's morally pure. He doesn't give his heart to anyone or to anything else or false. He doesn't um, desire what shouldn't be desired. He doesn't worship anything that's not worthy. He doesn't look for joy anywhere but God. God is his treasure. God is his joy. That's the one that he's consumed with. And finally, he doesn't swear deceitfully. He's true to his word. 
No one who says one thing and then does another. This is a man of honor, integrity, truth. And to the one who has that pure character, as you read on to verse six, he received, uh, five, he receives a great reward. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Uh, the, the blessing consists of receiving what his heart has desired. Uh, all he's ever wanted is to ascend the hill of the Lord, to stand in the presence of the Lord. Now he gets to enter, to experience, to enjoy the blessing of the presence of God himself. All of that life, mercy, joy, peace, all of that is his. Righteousness has the sense of vindication. The, the righteous one we've seen has been persecuted by other people, but now he's honored personally by the Lord. He's righteous in, somehow in the way that the Lord himself is righteous. He's, he's realizing his greatest goal in life. Um, I was watching, the, it came on the TV the other day, the, the footage of Andy Murray winning Wimbledon for the first time. Can't believe it's 10 years ago. But if you ever see the, the video again, he's pumping his fists with delight. He's celebrating with his family. He's sinking to his knees. There's tears coming out of his eyes because he's receiving everything that he's ever dreamt of. I wonder if that's just a little picture of what we've got going on here. Our worshiper has lifted his soul to the Lord He's kept his, his heart clean, his hands pure. He's resisted every lie. He's turned from every idol. Now he's standing before the Lord. He's blessed in the Lord's presence with life forevermore. What's intriguing though in, in verse six is that until now, it's felt as though we're talking about an individual man. You've got that this is a, a righteous man we've been talking about, a new and better Adam, someone who's lived a pure and holy life. Now we discover he's not on his own. Verse six, such is the generation, uh, the characteristic of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. We're not told how it's gonna happen just here, but there's a hint, it gets uh, amplified, it gets picked up elsewhere in the Bible that, that somehow through his own righteous behavior and work, this holy man is going to enable others to share in his righteousness and to seek the Lord as he does. The mystery is explained in Isaiah 53. God has been speaking of his servant, the Lord Jesus, who's gonna suffer, who's gonna be led like a lamb to the slaughter, to pay the price for, for our guilt, to bring us peace with God. And then he says, out of the anguish of his soul, this righteous one, this servant, will see and be satisfied because by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. So what we've got going on in, in Psalm 24 is a wonderful picture of grace. Um, a, a friend of mine was trying to gain entry to an exclusive event. Uh, he didn't have the right ticket. Security was tight. He got as far as the security guard, and then he couldn't get in. Uh, he happened to know the person running the event who walked past, saw him stuck on the outside, and said, it's okay, he's with me. And so the security guard stands back. The cordon gets lifted, 
and my friend was ushered in. And I think that is the, the sense here. Here is this one truly righteous one, the only one who has the right to enter into the presence of God forever. But through his death, he has opened the way and made it possible for people like us to follow after him and to become like him. One of the commentators says, what words could ever express the debt that we owe and the praise that is due to the one who had the right to walk straight into heaven, but chose first to die so that we might enter with him. The hymn writer put it, how marvelous, how wonderful, my song shall ever be, how marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. And words will never do justice to the wonder of it, but I hope you'll want to stop at some point today and say thank you to the righteous one who died so that you could enter. He's the Lord of creation. He's the Lord of salvation. It's no wonder that the psalm ends with one of the great anthems of Scripture, the Lord, the King of glory. Verse 7, lift up your heads, O gates, be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory. It seems strange at first, doesn't it, to be talking, to, to be addressing inanimate objects like gates and, and doors. But again, we need to run with it for a little bit. The, the picture is of the righteous one from verses 3 to 6 we've just been reading about. He's arriving at the gates of Jerusalem, maybe at the doors of the temple itself. And so far, the psalm has suggested he's righteous, so he'll be ushered straight into God's presence. He alone is worthy to go there. But instead, it seems as though the gates and doors have been bolted shut, as they have been ever since Adam was banished from the garden. And uh, do you remember the cherubim being put there to guard the way back to the tree of life? And the, the gates and doors have been a bit like security guards. They're only ever going to open when someone who's genuinely worthy turns up. But evidently, they've got a bit tired of waiting. And so in the imagery, their heads have started to droop. And then verse 7 and verse 9 are like a, a cheer-up call to the bouncers. Lift up your heads. It's time to rejoice. It's time to celebrate. Open wide because the King of glory has arrived and you need to let him in. And the, the repetition of verse 7 and verse 9 or the near repetition underlines the point. This is the one that we've been waiting for. But then comes the surprise because in verses 3 to 6, the righteous ones seem to us like a holy man who would receive blessing from Yahweh. But now we learn something truly remarkable. Who is the king of glory, verse 8? The Lord, Yahweh himself, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Who is the king of glory, verse 10? The Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. So I think we're getting this picture that the, the righteous one is somehow both distinct from Yahweh, the Lord, and yet is also the Lord. 
At one and the same time, he's both man and mighty Lord. He's the God of the armies. He's the creator and the owner from, of all from verse 1. I don't think David fully understood how it would happen, but if you've read the Gospels, you'll know that Jesus was fully man and fully God. Here, here the talk is of him being strong and mighty in battle. Um, we know that his fight wasn't waged with swords, uh, the weapons of this world. He didn't come to build a worldly empire. He came to fight sin and evil. He came to rescue people from the grip of sin. And he did it by triumphing on the cross as he died for us. That's his victory. And these verses are the what happened next. So they're a, a picture of the risen Lord Jesus. And he's distinct from God the Father, and yet he's equal to him. And he ascends to the gates of heaven. And he receives a hero's welcome. Because he's not only worthy to enter on his own merit, but through his death, he's opened the way for people like us to follow in his steps and to receive the Lord's blessing with him. And as the, the gates and the doors and the rest of heaven celebrate and give honor to this king of glory, I think we're being invited to join in. Well, time to draw to a close. I started by saying that the way that we treat things will be proportional to our estimation of their worth. That it's a principle that holds for God himself, that our sense of who he is will condition our response to him. The honor, the worship we render him, the energy we give to knowing him and serving him will be dependent on what we think he's worth. So I want to ask you what you make of him as we close, in particular whether your response to him matches his objective worth. He is the Lord of creation, He's the maker, the owner of everyone and everything, including you and me. He's the Lord of salvation, the one truly righteous one whose death makes many righteous. He's the Lord, the King of glory. And we've seen in this little collection of Psalms that this Lord Jesus uh, is the forever king of a perfect kingdom and that he invites us to be a part of it. We've thought of him as the good shepherd who promises to lead us to green pastures and still waters to restore our soul. We've thought of him as one who pursues us with goodness and mercy, who will be with us even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We've thought of him as the king who has proven himself faithful and who has conquered death. We've thought of him as the rock, the fortress, our deliverer, the one who speaks to us in his word to give light and life and wisdom and joy. This is the one who makes known to us the path of life, in whose presence we're told there is fullness of joy and at whose right hand there are pleasures forevermore. This is the one who will reign forever in glory and wants us to reign with him. Well, what kind of response do you think that he merits from you? And how does it compare to what you're giving him now? What kind of loyalty, what kind of love, what kind of service does this Lord 
deserve. I wonder if you agree with Isaac Watts. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Let's pray together. Almighty God, it's good for us to be reminded of your greatness and your glory. It's good to be reminded that we belong to you. And that idea bristles with us. We're so used to thinking of ourselves as the kings and queens of our own life that bits of us bulks against it. It's good for us to be reminded that it's only in and through the Lord Jesus that we could have any relationship with you. We're so used to thinking that we're good enough and trusting in ourselves. We struggle sometimes to lean wholly upon him. And we don't always remember his greatness, the king of glory. And so it's no wonder that our response is so often lukewarm and we don't rejoice in him and celebrate him or serve him and follow after him in the way that we should. We pray, therefore, that by the power of your Spirit, you would write these truths on our hearts this morning. Help us even in the week to come to reflect on this psalm, to meditate on its message, to be changed by it in our attitudes and our desires, that we might give to our Lord of creation, of salvation, and of glory, the honor, the praise, the worship, and the service that he deserves. And we pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.